The scripture reading is from the books of Acts, chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, and chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. It can be found on page 914 in the Black Bibles. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Shilisha and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and we will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, when they had heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped, him, stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Jessica and James. Appreciate that very much. I would uh, encourage you to keep your Bibles out and open uh, to Acts chapters, uh, mainly chapter 7, but 6 and 7, because what comes after uh, the, the beginning part that Jessica read and the ending part that James read is an entire sermon uh, from Stephen that encompasses pretty much the entirety of the Old Testament. So we're not going to go through all of that, but we will touch on parts of it. So it'd be good to have that open. Uh, and if you're wondering who Stephen is, uh, we'll get back to that because we're skipping over one passage that talks a little bit about who he is and what he does. Uh, but we will we'll move back uh, to that uh, in the coming weeks. So let me now pray as we look into God's word. Thank you, O Lord, for your word. And thank you for the encouragement that it is. Thank you for the challenge that it is to us as well. Uh, open our ears and our hearts that we would be both challenged and encouraged by your Holy Spirit through the preaching of your word today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. My um, career as a thief was short and illustrious, both of those things. It mainly constituted a time when I was five years old, 
when I was at the grocery store with my father. Uh, now, usually going to the grocery store with my father was a lot better for me than going to the grocery store with my mother because I, I could end up with fruity pebbles and all kinds of things uh, from the store. But what I really wanted was a pack of gum at the checkout counter of the Kroger in Jackson, Mississippi. See it today. I wanted the gum. I asked my dad for the gum. He wouldn't get me the gum. So I took the gum, stole the gum. I think I was five. Now, nobody had seen me, and this encouraged me because I was really terrified, and nobody saw it. And so, being emboldened by my thieving skills, I simply pulled it out of my pocket, unwrapped it, unwrapped a piece, popped it into my mouth, walked into the car, chewing away. And my dad looks at me and says, where did you get that gum? Ooh, didn't think about that. Now... I had a decision to make at that moment. My dad knew that I had asked for gum and he had said no. My dad knew that I didn't bring the gum from home. And so I was faced with a dilemma. Option one, tell the truth. The truth was that I had stolen the gum and although that I was decent at being a thief, I wasn't very smart. Attempting to enjoy the spoils of my thievery is like returning to the scene of the crime, right? Telling the truth, I believed, would uh, result in unpleasant consequences. So I kept that one in the back of my head. Option two, lie. What gum? No, that one wasn't going to work. All right, think. I found it in the parking lot. That's possible. Someone must have dropped it out of their basket. I actually had the the gum in my pocket all the time, and and who knew? It it magically appeared there. It was beyond me to attempt to explain the mysteries of the universe. I mean, who, who knows how it happened, right? You have to get philosophical about these things. So, what was I to do? What to do? There were consequences to the truth. Could I bear them? Should I bear them? That was the question. Now, truth always has consequences, Truth always has consequences. Stephen knew exactly what was at stake when the high priest heard the charges that were leveled against him and said, are these things true? Stephen could have been, you know, like, um, like the, the, the actor, you know, who stood up and, and said, true, you can't handle the truth because they really couldn't handle the truth. But he was going to tell it anyway. Are these things so? He was asked to testify to the truth. He knew that there would be consequences given how he answered the question. It's a pivotal story in the narrative of Acts because it really tells us how the church grew outside of Jerusalem. The Christian faith at that point was confined to this place and then it went all over the world. How did that happen? This story tells us. Now, if you're a Christian, you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a call on your life, just like there was a call on Stephen's life. That call on your life is to bear witness to the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. To bear witness to that, both with your words, but also with your life. In whatever sphere the Lord has placed you in, the call on your life is to testify to the truth of the gospel both verbally and by the way that you live. And there are consequences to that confession. Even now there are consequences. So what I want us to do this morning is to look at both of these things, the truth of the gospel and the consequences for bearing witness to the truth. 
through the lens of the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. So what is the truth that we're uh, called to bear witness to? What are the consequences to bearing witness to the truth? And what does this mean for your life as an individual follower of Jesus? What does it mean for our life as a church? Keep these questions in mind as we walk through this passage. First, what is the truth? What is the truth? The truth is this. Jesus Christ alone is Savior and Lord. Jesus Christ alone is Savior and Lord. The stoning of Stephen, his death, is initially prompted by testimony from false witnesses, people who were lying about things that he had said, that brought those charges to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They made two charges against Stephen. First, they were saying that he was speaking against the temple because he was saying that Jesus of Nazareth said that he would destroy the temple. And also that Jesus said that he would destroy and change all of the laws of Moses and get rid of them. Now, in either case, if true, if either one of these things were true, that he were charged with destroying the temple or saying that the law of Moses would be erased, those would amount to blasphemy against God and the punishment for blasphemy against God was death by stoning. So the question at hand for them and for us is twofold. What is true? Where do we turn for salvation? Who rules over our lives? Who's our savior? Who's our Lord? Stephen's answer to both of those questions can be summarized in one word, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is Savior. The temple in Jerusalem was the place of sacrifice. It was the location, so to speak, of salvation for the Jews in Jerusalem. It was the place where the Jewish people gathered to have their relationship to God restored through the intercession of the priests. It was the place, so to speak, where salvation was found. That's one of the reasons it would have been so upsetting to the residents of Jerusalem to hear threats of its destruction. There was another reason, though. The other reason that it would have been upsetting to the residents of Jerusalem was that it was also the economic hub of the city. The the activities of the temple during the seasons of celebration that went along with the calendar of the year were the main economic engine of the entire city of Jerusalem. It would be akin to someone coming to Orlando and standing in the middle of the city and said, this guy says he's going to tear Disney World down. It just wouldn't go over well. It wouldn't go over well. But is it true? Did Jesus actually say that he was going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem? Actually, what Jesus said is recorded in the Gospel of John in chapter 2, verse 19. He said this, speaking to the Jews who had asked for a sign that he is the Messiah, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they all looked at him like he was crazy. And they said, what? It took 46 years to build this temple and you'll rebuild it in three days? But the apostle John lets us in on a secret. He says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Crucify me, 
and in three days I will rise again. That is what Jesus was actually saying. And that's why in this sermon that we didn't read, Stephen reminds us in verse 48 of chapter 7 that God the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. No, the temple as God's dwelling place and the location of sacrifices was destined from the very beginning to become obsolete. Why? Because what happens there is fulfilled once and for all in Christ alone. So that's the first aspect. Jesus is Savior alone. The second aspect of truth we see here is that Jesus alone is Lord. The second charge against Stephen was that he spoke against Moses and the law of God. That means really a lot of the Old Testament uh, that was passed down, the law that was passed down by God himself directly to Moses on Mount Sinai. Is this charge true? What did Jesus actually say about the law as passed down by God to Moses? He said this, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 5. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, all authority, Jesus says, in heaven and earth and under the earth is vested in me. If you want to keep the law, if you really want to keep the law, if you want to do what Moses told you to do, there is one way to do that. It is to let the law do what it was designed to do in the first place, which is to push you to faith in Christ alone. Apart from faith in Christ, it is impossible to keep the law because that is the Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And that's the irony, because by refusing to come to Christ, to they, the, the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem who, make the, who, who take pride in following the law, they're actually refusing to obey it. They're refusing to obey it because they were not prepared to hear where the law ends, which is in faith in Christ. So Jesus is Savior and he is Lord and the entire Bible from beginning to end testifies to this. Now here's something that I think is important for us to understand. We like very often to think, I think maybe every generation you know, has kind of thought, we live in the, you know, we live in the worst times in the world, you know? Our culture is the worst that the world has ever seen. Uh, you might think that now. Uh, I probably think that, thought that. My parents probably thought it at some point. But here's, the, here's an interesting thing. There is very little difference between us in Houston in 2021 and Stephen in Jerusalem somewhere in the 30s of A.D., there's very little difference between what got people in Jerusalem angry at that time and what gets people in Houston in 2021 angry. Very little difference. The same thing essentially is upsetting your neighbors or your coworkers or your family members. And that thing that is upsetting, that was upsetting then, is upsetting now and has been upsetting in all times in between is the exclusivity of Christ. The biblical claim of exclusivity. For salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by which you may be saved. Or as we've already sung about this morning, I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father but through me.
That was not a popular message in AD 30-something because it told the very top-tier people in the city of Jerusalem that they were lost. That all the things that they had built their lives upon were null and void. To be clear, to be very clear, Stephen in his sermon was saying that the most religious people, the most well-respected people were lost and without hope because they did not trust in Jesus. So what causes that animosity is the direct challenge to what the religious leaders in Jerusalem were counting on as the very foundation of their lives. Everything that they were standing on, Stephen was calling into question as not being solid, as actually being crumbling sand, following the law of Moses to a T, following the law of Moses better than anyone else. That is what provided their social standing. All of the activities of the temple, that is what they understood to be the pinnacle of of religious devotion to God, moral superiority. And Stephen challenges all of them. He disassembles the very foundation that they had erected for their lives. And it was upsetting. And it was angering. And it's the very same now. What are Houstonians constructing as the foundation of their lives apart from Jesus? I think one way to know the answer to that question is like Stephen, to call it into question. To call it into question to see if these things are strong enough and powerful enough to stand on. And you know what happens when you call into question the very foundation of someone's life if it is apart from Jesus? They get mad. They get angry. They get hostile, just like what happened to Stephen. And I think for a lot of people uh, living in our city now, that foundation is some version of self-centeredness. It is some some version of myself. My freedom to express my authentic self with no standards and no challenges to it. My freedom to pursue my happiness in whatever way it is that makes me happy. My freedom to pursue more and more and more and more. And if fidelity to Jesus ever bumps up against one of these kinds of things, opposition will occur. Opposition will occur. So that's the truth as portrayed by Stephen in this sermon. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Salvation is found nowhere else but in him. What are the consequences of bearing witness to it, either verbally with your mouth or with your life? Well, we see it. The moment of greatest tension in this passage begins in verse 51 of chapter 7. Stephen has gone through a sermon where he's basically preached through the entirety of the Old Testament. That's why we didn't read it. It's very long. And he has concluded that all of it, the entire Old Testament, meaning the entire scriptures that they had access to, is fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, he's not speaking against the law. He is showing them and us that all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. 
So the way actually to show honor to the temple and the way actually to show honor to the law of Moses is to come to Jesus and to put your faith in Jesus. But they've refused to come, choosing persecution over love. Their hearts are hard. So here is how Stephen ends his sermon, starting in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, if this sermon had happened in public in 2021, somebody would have videoed this on their phone and they would put it on YouTube and you would be watching it. And as soon as he said that, you know what you would think? This guy's in trouble. This guy just poked the bear and he was in trouble. And temporal suffering of the absolute worst kind came upon Stephen. But so did other things, surprising things, actually beautiful things. And we're going to talk about all of those things as consequences of a life of truth. We'll start with the bad news and we'll work to the good news. The first consequence of bearing witness to the truth of Christ by your words and in your life is suffering. John Trapp, our senior pastor, has been talking about this in other passages in Acts. It's a theme of Acts all the way through, so it it, it is true. And I do not mean that you're going to get killed, you're going to get stoned like Stephen did, um, but it is the universal testimony of the Bible, and Jesus references this repeatedly in his teaching, that a life of bearing witness to the truth of the gospel will lead you to suffering in this world. It may be the suffering of social ostracism, people leaving you out of things or of clubs or of organizations. It may be the suffering of being passed over for vocational advancement because you will not do the things that your boss uh, desires as necessary for the advancement of the business. It may be the suffering of living uh, without certain relationships because you refuse to make compromises out of faithfulness to Christ. It may be the suffering of being made fun of either to your face or behind your back online. Called names to your face or behind your back online. The fact is that faithfully bearing witness to Christ as Savior and Lord runs directly counter to the ethos and to the values of the world. Always has. This is not new. If this were new, this passage wouldn't be here. So don't think that this is new. It always has been this way. And when these two things collide, the values of the world and the truth of the gospel, suffering results. Jesus knew that. And that's why he closed the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 with these words. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. It is important, I think, if you're a Christian, to read again carefully the beginning of these words. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. He does not say blessed are you if these things happen. He said blessed are you when these things happen. 
Suffering is a consequence of bearing witness to the truth of the gospel in your life and with your words. The second consequence, though, of bearing witness to the truth of Christ is honor. Now, not honor in the world, but honor in a more important place. I don't know if there's a more beautiful passage in the entire Bible than Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Listen again to these words. See the difference in the countenance between Stephen, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, and the residents of Jerusalem, who in the parlance of our day have definitely been triggered and are angry. This is what happens, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, being Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And then I'll go to verse 1 of chapter 8 real quick. And Saul approved of his execution. Did you see in your mind's eye what Stephen saw with his eye eyes? Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is really important. Don't pass over this. This is super important. The Bible talks about Jesus at the right hand of God. Actually, the Apostles' Creed that we confess very often in our church talks about Jesus at the right hand of God. But in other passages in the Bible and in our creeds, what is the posture of Jesus at the right hand of God? He is not standing, he is seated. He is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He's seated at God's right hand, but here, here, in this passage, he stands. Now, why is Jesus usually seated at the right hand of God? Well, first, it signifies that his work of salvation is finished. When he died on the cross, what did Jesus say? He said, it is finished. Salvation is accomplished and applied in his death and his resurrection on the cross. So he ascends into heaven and he sits down. The work of salvation is done. There's no more work to do. But the second thing is that it signifies his rule. He's doing something sitting on a throne. What he is doing sitting on a throne is ruling over the universe. He's ruling over his creation. He's been exalted to the highest place and at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But here, here when Stephen is being stoned, when Stephen is testifying uh, in his words and then his actions to Christ, Jesus stands. Why? I can think of no other reason other than that Jesus stands to honor his servant who is bearing witness to him. The commentator F.F. Bruce says simply this, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men and now he sees Christ 
confessing his servant before God. Do you see the beauty in this? Do you know that when you feel like you are the only one, when you feel utterly alone, when you feel ostracized, that Jesus stands with you? When you feel the weight of the world gnashing their teeth at you and lying about you and ignoring you and passing over you, that Jesus stands with you? Do you know that when the evil one is shooting all of his darts at you and you feel like God is away from you and you feel on the verge of slipping or on the verge of giving up, that the God of the universe who has accomplished salvation, who rules over all things, stands to honor you and to support you in your persecution and in your suffering. He does not sit and watch it. He stands and testifies to faithfulness. It's a beautiful thing. And the final consequence of bearing witness to the truth of Christ is the expansion of the knowledge of God, the expansion of the gospel. I love the simplicity of chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. We meet a guy in this passage randomly. It seems weird. In chapter 7, they're getting ready to go stone Stephen. He has uttered blasphemy. They chase him out of the city. Now, in order to properly throw stones at somebody, you have to get rid of your outer garment. And if you get rid of your outer garment, it is liable to be stolen. So somebody has to guard it. So they lay it at the feet of a young man, a young up-and-comer, a religious young man named Saul. And you're thinking, well, that's a weird detail. I don't care. Why do I need to know that? Well, because what we learn is that in trying to silence the spread of the gospel and trying to silence the knowledge of Christ, they're actually spreading it. They're spreading it. This persecution of Stephen launched a full bore persecution of Christians in the city of Jerusalem. And do you know what happened? The Christians in the city of Jerusalem dispersed. And all of the people who were promoting that persecution were like, great, we did it. We stopped this thing before it even got started because they're just going to run away. And now they're scared of us and they're going to keep their mouths shut. But do you know what happened? They, they scattered out of Jerusalem. They went to every corner of the known world at the time. And do you know what they did not do? Keep their mouths shut. They testified everywhere they went that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the biggest perpetrator of this scandal was a young man named Saul who ultimately became Paul, who saw the risen Lord, who saw the error of his persecution, who was convicted of it, and who became Jesus' chosen apostle to the Gentiles. This man, at this point, approved of the execution, but later in his life, took the gospel all over the known world. Persecution causes the gospel to burn very brightly. It burns hot. And the same is true today. The gospel burns brightest in places in the world where it is not comfortable to be a follower of Jesus. 
places that we prayed for this morning, places like the Muslim world or the Middle East or China or parts of Africa, places where persecution and suffering is very bodily and very physical and still very real, places where Jesus stands as witnesses to suffering servants who are still suffering harm and death. But we have our opportunities in our own spheres, do we not? We have those opportunities in the private moments of our lives, like do I trust in Jesus to provide for me or do I have to compromise the standards of the scriptures just to keep up with my neighbors in this city? Do I trust Jesus to take care of my college admission process or do I have to add a whole bunch of activities that I didn't really do but maybe I thought about to my resume to make it look better than it is so I can get what I want? We also have these opportunities in our private lives like am I willing to bear the social consequences of testifying to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ with both my words and my actions that he is the way and the truth and the life when the only unassailable standard in our culture is expressive individualism that holds no standard other than yourself. Well, I testify in my life that the Bible is my standard for the way that I live and therefore I can't simply do whatever it is that I want in this world, that I'm constrained by the love of God and love of neighbor through the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ in my life. When you speak and live truth, there will be consequences. I know that you're all dying to know what I did with my dad. It's going to keep you up at night if I don't tell you. I told the truth. I fessed up. Said I stole the gum. And there was a consequence, as I thought, to telling the truth. And it was, as I thought, not pleasant. And the consequence was this. That my dad turned me around and walked me back into the Kroger in Jackson, Mississippi. Called the manager to the front. Manager, we need you at the front, please. And the manager came up and I had to give him, I, I promise you that guy was 12 feet tall. And I had to give him the gum back. And then I had to offer to sweep the floors for the piece of gum that I had taken out of the pack and put in my mouth. It was one of the scariest things I'd ever done. I was crying so hard. I remember this like it was yesterday. I was crying so hard that I could almost not get the words out. But, but, I wasn't alone in that. My dad was standing there right next to me and he wasn't standing there yelling at me, frustrated at me, frowning at me, disappointed in me. He knew that this was hard. He knew that what I was doing was hard. He knew what he'd asked me to do was hard. So he stood by me and he put his hand on my shoulder. He let me know that he was there as I was bearing the consequences of telling the truth. When you speak and live truth, there will be consequences. But the greatest consequences are that it testifies to the glory of Christ. The knowledge of Christ spreads in the world even when people want to put it out. And Jesus, your Savior, stands with you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for standing with us. And thank you for this story. Thank you for Luke, your servant, who heard this story through Paul, who was there, 
um, and gave us every detail. Thank you that we have this to know that we are not alone in our suffering and our persecution when it comes. And please, Father, make us faithful and stand with us in that faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.